Well, tonight um, we are going to be studying in Genesis chapter 37, and we enter kind of the final major section of the book of Genesis, because from chapter 37 to the end of the book, the central character now moves from, from Jacob to his son Joseph. And um, well, let's just, let's just read um, the first nine verses and then we'll, uh, we'll start right in. Well, before we do that, let me just say, the, the thing that, that it stands out about Joseph and I think where we can draw a lot of value in reading about this man's life is the character that he exhibits over the course of the time we will witness his life because we enter in here where he's now 17 years old and um, we, we're going to see some things about him that I find very encouraging because this is a man who suffered uh, persecution by the people closest to him he suffered injustice he was mistreated and he was also elevated by the Lord and through all of that, you get a sense that his, his character never changes. You know, sometimes we can be solid citizens until the point where the fires of, you know, of persecution or, or trial start to blow on us. And then all of a sudden, thing, the wheels start to come off. This is, this is a, a quote from James Montgomery Boyce, a very famous Bible commentator and theologian, pastor. Um, and this is how he described Joseph. He says, he was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. Yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. And when I look at that, I'd say, well, that's the prescription that every Christian would want to aspire to, is that that would be said about us, that in adversity, our heart would not be hardened, in prosperity, we would not be ruined, um, that we would, we would continue to trust in the Lord in plenty, we would continue to trust in the Lord in, in trouble. And, uh, and he, he really represents how somebody who starts out with, with a, with a modicum of faith, allows the Lord to increase that faith by the circumstances of his life. There was never a time we'll see in the rest of the book of Genesis where Joseph is doubting God, shaking his fist at heaven, saying, why me, God, or anything like that. And if anybody that we've encountered in Scripture could have a little bit of a, a justification for doing that, it'd probably be him, as we see. Um, but he is the proof of what Paul would write in Romans chapter 5 between verses 3 and 5. Because there Paul wrote this. He said, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And we're going to see in the course of Joseph's life that the betrayal that he suffers from his own family does not create an impediment for him at the critical time when he would be the one that the entire 
promise of Messiah would, would be on his shoulders in the sense of saving pretty much the family of Jacob, the family of Israel, that, that he would not allow the injustice that was done to him to get in the way of what God had for him to do. He was called, just like Esther was born for just such a time as her time, Joseph was the man who was born for just as such a time as the crisis that the family of, of God, the chosen people of God, were facing in the course of his lifetime. And so this is why I think I mentioned in our prayer time before we came in here that Joseph's life becomes a real typological pointer towards the Savior, towards Jesus Christ. We're going to see in this chapter 37, he's by no means perfect. None of us are. But the way in which he conducts his life in the midst of his life circumstances uh, really gives us a pointer towards the Lord. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Actually, I'll just for now read over to verse 4. We read there, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Well, you kind of get this picture, and this is a picture that plays out uh, often, where in a large family, you know, because of a large family, there's, well, there's 12 sons here, and, and they're spread out over probably a couple of decades. Uh, if Joseph is 17 here, he's got brothers that are probably, you know, in their 30s and, and maybe even older. And, um, and so, and, and, it's almost like Joseph is a grandson to, to uh, Jacob because uh, Jacob had these older sons and we've seen already in some of the previous chapters that those sons didn't particularly turn out well and, and now he's kind of got this do-over with this son Joseph, the, the son of his old age, and he loves him and we can't forget the fact that Joseph is the first son that his beloved wife the wife that he wanted to marry all along, gave him. And so uh, he's obvious some, obviously somebody that, uh, th that Joseph or that Jacob favored, that Israel favored above all the other brothers. And this was made well known in Israel's family. And again, this is part of the dysfunction that we've seen already in this large family. Uh, favoritism with the wives, now favoritism with the children. Uh, this never works out well for anybody. And in this passage of these first four verses, we see what we often see with favored children is they start to kind of get a little bit full of themselves, and now he, he takes upon himself um, the, the duty, if you will, to go back and tell his father uh, the, the the misgivings of his brothers. You know, he, we see here he is with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and uh, he goes back and reports a bad report to his father about these these brothers. And I get a sense as we go through this chapter that that uh, Israel probably had a little bit of a mistrust of these older sons of his, and so um, 
obviously his older brothers despise him for that aspect of Joseph's positioning with his father. And it's made that much more loathsome to them because he then is, is reporting back to his father on the misdeeds of his older brothers. And we see here something else that's very significant, and that is that because Israel loved Joseph so much, we read here that he made him a tunic of many colors. And this, this description of it being a tunic of many colors, um, it, uh, the, the real idea behind the ancient uh, Hebrew phrase of tunic of many colors is that it was it was probably a tunic that went down from the wrists and all the way down to the, the ankles. It was not the shorter kind of garment that, for example, a man working in the field would be wearing. This would be a garment that would be uh, representative of privilege and status. And, and, and the fact that it had many colors as opposed to kind of the monochromatic type of clothes that a shepherd or a man working in the field would wear, obviously his father is... is symbolically and even actually raising the status of this youngest or young, second youngest son in his family. And it would probably not be lost on his older brothers that, hey, wait a minute now. The, the, the blessing of Israel's father, the, the, the inheritance of Israel's father, Isaac, didn't go to the oldest brother. It went to the younger brother. And so they might be kind of anticipating Joseph, Joseph's mother is the woman that, that, Isaac, or that, um, that Jacob really wanted to marry. He favors her, so he's going to favor her son. And so there's a whole kind of a, a bad, bad vibe about Joseph relative to his brothers. And now here they have this constant reminder of this tunic that his father has made him that he gets to wear around his brothers. And that was probably a source of continual irritation. It gets worse. Verse five, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers <laughs> and they hated him even more. Um, so he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. He must have been a courageous little lad to, to know that his older brothers don't have much time for him. It's like, oh, but wait till you hear this. Oh, this is so good. He says, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. The, you know, the, the bundles of, of grain that they would collect and they would tie those off. And, and so the, in the dream, they're all binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, my sheaf rose and also stood upright and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf and his brother said to him shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words now the interesting thing here let's just call a spade a spade this this is a Maybe an unwise move by our friend Joseph here that he would, I mean, he dreamed the dream that he dreamt. I think he's sharing it maybe, maybe out of youthful innocence, but maybe also out of jabbing the older brothers to say, hey, what do you think that one means, you guys? The, so, so it was probably not wise for him to share it, but it was, it was something that was useful in the sense that it becomes prophetic. And, and the second dream is going to be even more so, but it becomes prophetic 
and it, um, it will ultimately set in motion a very unlikely string of events that ironically lead to the salvation of Israel. Carrying on, verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father, this would be Israel, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, obviously, even Israel was chapped by this dream because now he's kind of in the picture as well. But the fact that it says that his father kept this in mind leads me to believe, and I don't think it's a big stretch, that, that Israel is of the mind that this is probably prophetic. I would think that part of what prompted Israel to provide this tunic of many colors to Joseph was that he saw God's hand on this young man. He saw how God was prospering this young man even from an early age. And we've all encountered people that you kind of get that sense about them that this isn't just some ordinary kid or this isn't just some ordinary young man or young woman. There's something about this person that you can just anticipate great things are going to come through and come to um, because of the way in which they've been put together and the way in which God's hand is upon them. And so now here comes uh, Joseph's second dream and, uh, and he's sharing this with his brothers, which is no end to the um, irritation of his brothers. And there's significance in what actually is seen in the dream. Because if we go back to verse 9, what do we see there? He says, I dreamed another dream. This time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, there's one other time in Scripture where that imagery is presented to us. And it's actually found in the book of Revelation. It's found in Revelation chapter 12 between verses 1 and 6. And then just I'll read you the passage and then we'll, we'll draw the line between what we're reading here and what we see in Revelation chapter 12. There we read, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Hmm, sounds real familiar. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and they, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. What an awesome connection is this. How it 
and this is why I, I, I say until I blew in the face, and, and I know other uh, people who, I know Jeff, for example, and people who commit their life to teaching the whole counsel of God. We can't emphasize enough, the whole counsel of God matters because it's not 66 books. It's one book, one theme, one superstar character of the book, and he's all throughout the book. And so, obviously, what we are reading in Revelation 12 is imagery that is pointing us towards Israel. The woman here is Israel. And what you see as she's adorned with the stars, the sun, the moon, this, one, this is the family of Israel, as shown to us right here in Joseph's second dream. The stars, the 12 tribes, the sun, the moon, all of you know, the ultimate progenitors of the nation Israel. And the fact that these, in the dream, that these stars, sun, and moon bow to him is pointing us prophetically towards the fact that it will be Joseph used by God to preserve what we would call the highway of the seed, the family of Israel, the promised, the, the, the people of covenant, the chosen people of God, the people that he has promised a kingdom without end. And that promise can't be affected, it can't be undone, it can't be abated, it is going to happen. But it's happening within the circumstances of human beings. And Joseph is the instrument of God who's going to preserve this family described here, right here in, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 37. Then we fast forward to Revelation and we see this same reference to Israel. But now the setting is not ancient uh, land of Canaan and Egypt. It's the end times. And the image that John is seeing is, is really the, the, the picture of Israel being formed and called out by God. And, and because God chose that people to bring to pass the promise that was made in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we read, and I will put enmity between you. Now, God is speaking to the serpent. This is the curse he places on the serpent. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. That is to say, he's going to inflict a mortal wound on you and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. But ironically, Satan, that's actually going to affect my purpose. You think you're killing my, my Messiah. You're actually allowing him to consummate his ministry. And so what we see in Revelation is a reference to this woman that is really symbolically Israel. And, and we're seeing the, the, the contest, more or less, formulating, coming to pass, because this fiery red dragon obviously, is Satan. And we see his fall kind of described there. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. That would be the third of the heavenly host that follows him. And we see that Satan, at every turn of Jesus' earthly appearance in his first advent, that Satan was opposing him. He, he used Herod the Great to, to issue the edict to say, kill all the children between these ages because 
Messiah or this, this coming king has been born somewhere in, in, our, in our country and I want to wipe him out before he even, you know, gets barely out of the womb. And then you track all of the things that happened to Jesus culminating with his crucifixion. And of course, that was not effectual. But it, it doesn't diminish the fact that from the moment that Jesus enters the earth, we see Satan attempting to devour the child, the child, the promised child of Israel, right? And then we read something that's very interesting, that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, again, you got to draw a line from here to Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, where we read about the beginning of Daniel's 70th week being the covenant sign between Antichrist, the, this false messiah of Satan, and the people of Israel, the woman, so to speak. And it's a seven-year covenant that uh, many scholars kind of agree on the fact that it has certainly something to do with opening the way for Israel to worship their God in their temple in Jerusalem. And then midway through that seven-year period, as we learn in Daniel chapter 9, that covenant is broken by Antichrist. He enters that temple, as Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. He presents himself as deity there. That's the abomination that brings desolation. And at that point, Antichrist becomes what he really was all along, which is a chief persecutor and one who desires to annihilate the woman, Israel, to completely annihilate her. And we, we, we get from the prophecy that Israel at that point in time flees for the second half of the tribulation. It's actually called out there 1,260 days, which is three and a half years if you go by the convention of a 30-day calendar that they used at the time. And uh, many, again, many scholars believe that the place that God has prepared for her, at least it's a theory of some, is the uh, ancient rock city of Petra, which we visited on our last trip to Israel. And when you see that, that ancient city and, and how you get to it and how it's all carved out of rock and it's kind of like a natural fortress, you kind of get a sense of, yeah, I could see them going to this place. And we see that God apparently will miraculously take care of them. Woman, woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So this is, this is all coming together between where we are in Genesis 37, what we know from uh, Genesis chapter 3, and what we will ultimately see in Revelation chapter 12. So this dream, these two dreams that Joseph has, getting back into our text now, these two dreams are prophecies. There are visions that God gave to Joseph in this dream. It's broadcast to his brothers. It's broadcast to his father. And the day will come when they will probably remember these dreams and understand that they came from the Lord because they were fulfilled uh, exactly. Now comes the unfortunate part of the story as we pick it up in verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Uh-oh, Shechem. Bad mojo in Shechem. This is the place where uh, Dinah, their sister, was raped. This is the place where two of the brothers uh, 
do a deception over the men of Shechem and ultimately kill them all, murder them all. It's a place where the flesh overcame Israel. And so it's, it's kind of a, a negative portending that this is where the brothers go to feed their flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Now again, I get a sense from this. It isn't thus saith the Lord. It's just an impression I get that there's some distrust with Israel over his older sons. And, and, and because, I mean, these are grown men. They're, they're shepherds and they've got the flock in Shechem. And I don't think it's any secret to, uh, to Israel that the older brothers don't look kindly on the younger brother. But he also knows that the younger brother, if he sees something amiss, is going to come back and tell him. And he wants to know. So he sends Joseph. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he's sending his little spy. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, that is Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I, hear, I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So, you know, Joseph sends his, or, or Israel sends his son, Joseph, to go and track his brothers to see what they're up to. And again, this kind of just gives me an impression that, um, that, that maybe Israel has some reason to question the motives and the activities of the older brothers now when they saw him afar off even before he came near them they conspired against him to kill him so maybe this was this was uh something that they had on their mind for some time now they see young joseph traipsing along heading their direction they're saying oh, okay here comes dad's little spy and uh now's our chance to kill this kid then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Um, and, and what we're seeing here is these men who have probably been bitten by the snake of envy for some time now. And this envy has finally grown in, in them a plot to murder. And this is what James warns in, in James 3.16 for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And this is a classic example of exactly what James is talking about, is that as they continue to burn in their envy for the way in which their younger brother is treated, for the favor that they get, that he gets from their very rich father, it starts to formulate in their minds and in their hearts all kinds of ways to get back at Joseph and ultimately they arrive at the ultimate evil thing which is to murder this young kid and uh, so they say there in verse 20 come therefore let us now kill him and cast him into some pit and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams but Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, 
that he might deliver him out of their hands. So, so now we're getting what, what Reuben is really uh, intending, that he might deliver him, that is Joseph, out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So here's what we got going on here. The brothers are all saying, here comes that dreamer. Now's our chance. We're going to kill him. We'll create this ruse that, that he was eaten by a wild animal and our father will never know the difference, although he'll be sad. We'll be done with that little scoundrel. Reuben steps in and says, hold on a second, guys. Let's, let's not have blood on our hands. Let's just throw him in a pit. And what, of course, Reuben is planning is that after the brother's attention is moved on to something else, Reuben will circle back and he will rescue Joseph and get him back to his father. And then he could always say, well, he somehow got out and got back to dad or whatever. Now, this might be a reason to applaud Reuben, to raise him up and say, well, it's, it's good to know there was somebody with some character in that family. Mm, not really. First of all, remember, Reuben was the one that slept with his father's wife. So uh, there's that. <laughs> but secondly, this is a classic case of what can happen when you believe something, but you fail to stand firmly for it. Reuben believed it was wrong to murder their brother, and he was right about that. What Reuben should have done was, he's the oldest, so he's, he's got rank, so to speak. He should have got in the face of these other brothers and said, are you guys out of your mind? So you don't like the kid. It's not occasion to murder him. We're not doing this. And then they, he would basically pose them with an alternative. Do not kill Joseph, or you're going to have to kill both of us. And you can explain that one to our father. That's what he should have done. And that's what we should do when we see something that is wrong. We should not, to coin the phrase from our previous conference, we should not be willing to live by lies. We should never stand for or accept something that we don't believe. To allow it to happen because, oh, that's going to be difficult if I raise a stink about it. And so what ends up happening is, is that Reuben's ruse, so to speak, doesn't end up saving his brother. And he's very disappointed about it. But he... he he brought that upon the situation himself by not having the fortitude to stand up to his brothers and say, no, this is wrong, we're not doing it. And, uh, and sadly, you know, we've talked in, in previous times about how um, compromise has entered the front door of the church, in, in, not this church, but in, uh, in the greater church. And it usually results from people with good intentions, leaders of churches who kind of know, well, they should know exactly what the word of God says. But they have this anxiety about having to take a stand and say, no, this is not coming in here. This is not what the word of God says. Our authority is not the consensus of the body of Christ that comes here. It is the word of God. And we coalesce around that, not around each other. We coalesce around the word of God. And so if there is pain on the other side of the decision, no, that will not happen here. No, we won't accept that here. No, we won't teach that here. Then so be it. But nip the evil in the bud. 
And Reuben failed to do that. Reuben, Reuben um, he, he failed to do that. And so they take Joseph. Let's, let's carry on in the narrative. Um, verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many cover, colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Now stop there for one second. They grab Joseph as he comes up to them. Hey guys, what's going on? Boom, they grab him. And the first thing we see that they do with him is they strip Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors. They must have taken great joy, great pleasure in stripping him of this tunic. Why? Because that tunic represented the favor of the father upon Joseph. And the evil of their hearts despised that he was favored by the father. And so they tore it from him. And I see a parallel there in this. You and I as Christians, we are saved for eternity. We have a home in heaven. We are just passing through as pilgrims. Because we have the favor of the Father. The favor of the Father is that he gave us his Son. And then his Son gave us his Spirit. And because you are favored by the Father, the enemy hates you. The enemy oppresses you. The enemy wants to do everything he can to, in your mind, strip you of the favor of the Father. The principal tool that the enemy uses against Christians is doubt and discouragement. And the doubt and discouragement will ultimately settle on the question, is God for me? Is God with me? Does God love me? Will God protect me? The writer of Hebrews knew this in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He said, let not your... Let, let your conduct be without covetousness. That's certainly not the case with these evil brothers. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. In other words, I have favor with the Father. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, he can throw you in a pit with no water. But ultimately, what can man do to us? And yet the enemy will use agents of human beings to oppress the lives of Christians. We see this around the world. We see it in the Middle East. We see it in Africa. We see it in India. We see it in China. By the way, a woman stopped by, a Chinese lady stopped by here on Tuesday while Brittany and I were, were uh, meeting, and she came into the office and she said, she gave us some brochures and she said, there's this, there's this show. It's kind of like a theater show built around the theme of what China was like before the communist Chinese party took over. And I said, well, we're going to look at that real carefully and provided there's nothing in there that would be harmful spiritually with our people, I'd, I'd like to make that event, you know, just put you in touch with this event because, you know, these people um, have been oppressed. They've grown up in a, in a culture and under an authoritarian regime that has made it 
difficult, if not impossible, to hear the gospel and receive it. And, um, and for those of us who have received it, the enemy hates you for it. And he will bring, in the case of China, it's the Chinese Communist Party that tries to stamp out Christianity in their midst. We will see persecution in our country as time goes on. We'll see increasing persecution of Christians. Kirk Cameron just came out with a children's book that really just lays out the Christian worldview at a level where young kids can understand it. And the publisher has just put the book out. And so now the publisher is trying to schedule these story readings at various public libraries. I read an article this morning that basically uh, states that none of these libraries are allowing it. They say, no, we, we can't have that here because we want to have a safe space for people. Because we're, we're inclusive and, and, and we believe that this would be offensive to those that we want to be welcoming towards. That's where we are. It starts with first marginalizing a group and then oppression follows closely after that. Here we see it in microcosm with the brothers loving to strip their brother of his indicia of the father's favor. And then the heartlessness of these brothers is evidenced in the fact that the, there's the brother in the pit. They move off a couple of feet. They open their lunch boxes, and they're having a meal. Um, sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes. Look, there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? In other words, he's saying, hey, we got a business opportunity here. Why would we want to kill the golden goose here? By the way, this is Judah, the one that's directly in the line of the Messiah, right? Uh, so if you ever think that the people who ultimately were the ancestors of Jesus were somehow these holy roller people with little halos over their heads and everything, um, no, no. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother in our flesh. Boy, that's magnanimous of Judah, isn't it? We shouldn't be killing our brother. Not when there's 20 pieces of silver to be made. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit so somehow he did not know uh, what had happened once uh, Joseph went into the pit. So now he returns to the pit with the intention of getting Joseph out of there and sending him home. But Joseph was not in the pit and Reuben tore his clothes. This is a sign of great profound grief that he's experiencing now. And he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more and I, where shall I go? Now, this is probably an indication that Reuben, as the oldest brother, would carry some responsibility for the younger brother. And now the younger brother will never return home, or at least so they thought. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? Oh, please <laughs> give me a break and he recognized it and said it is my son's tunic 
a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Exactly the impression they wanted to create. Their ruse is working just as planned. How cruel is this to their father? Knowing how much that father treasured Joseph as his son, and now they come back to him and they basically give him the worst possible news that his son has been torn to pieces and is no more. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. Boy, I have a hard time imagining his sons arising to comfort him, knowing that his blood was on their hands. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Now, this chapter lays out a story that is about as depressing and sad as it can be. But as we see the story unfold, we're going to see how God's plan plays out in the midst of human folly, of human evil. Because if Joseph wasn't favored by his father, his brothers wouldn't have hated him quite so much. And if his brothers didn't hate him so much, they would have never thrown him in a pit. And if they hadn't thrown him in the pit, then they probably would never have been there to see the Midianites coming along and sell their brother to the Midianites. And the Midianites, if they hadn't come along, then Joseph never would have been sold to, to Potiphar. And Potiphar is, is associated with the royal household. And if he was never sold to Potiphar, he would never have been tempted by Potiphar's wife. That would ultimately land him in jail. You're probably saying, okay, um, this all sounds horrible so far. What are you talking about? If he was never tempted and arrested for the lie that he tried to seduce Potiphar's wife, he never would have been thrown into jail. If he had never been thrown into jail, he would have never met the butler and the baker that we're going to see him meet in jail and interpret their dreams. If he had never interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker, his reputation to Pharaoh would never have reached Pharaoh so that he could go and interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And if he had never interpreted Pharaoh's dreams why he would never have become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And if he had never become the second most powerful man in Egypt, why he never would have been in a position to save Israel from famine and being wiped out. And if he had never saved his family, Israel, from being wiped out, God's promise would have ended right there. But God is a promise keeper. And so in the midst of the stupidity and the evil that we are so good at bringing to pass god will not be foiled and 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 in some in miraculous ways not that god wanted all that injustice and evil to happen god does not we we see it right in scripture in black and white god does not promote sin he does not cause sin he does not tempt anybody but god is sovereign he's all-powerful he's all-knowing and in the midst of what goes on what human beings will do because of who we are, God works his plan every time to perfection. He'll do that in your life. He'll do that in my life. The things that we read in scripture concerning what the end of days will be and what the ultimate result will be of all of the, the heaps and heaps of evil that the world has perpetrated and yet will perpetrate 
God's plan will happen just as it's written. It is written. That's what Jesus responded every time to Satan's temptation. It is written. It is written. It is written. And there's no, God's word is immutable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of God's word will pass away. And so, again, I, I find the account of Joseph's life to be really, as, as much as it's filled with all kinds of intrigue and, and bad, bad actors and whatnot, it is one of the most encouraging, uplifting um, accounts in all of the Bible because it shows the, that imperfect people who yet exhibit a godly character can be grown and strengthened by God and bring about an, a result that, that, that promotes God's plan. And isn't that why we're here? Isn't that what we want to do? Don't we want to be part of the solution, not the problem? And, and Joseph is a great, a great model for all of us to see in that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your word, for its truth, for these precious accounts that you have preserved, that we could read them here in the 21st century, learn by them, aspire to them, be inspired by them. Lord, the same spirit that worked those miracles in Joseph's day now lives in us, Lord. Give us confidence, Lord. We have favor from the Father. And no matter what the enemy says or does in our lives, we have the favor of the Father. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is for us. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, for saving us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.